When I was in Manchester, we had um, a morning service which was broadcast live, and everybody was ever so tensed up about it. And, and just two minutes before it began, they ran down the church and powdered my head. Um, <laughs> so they didn't reflect on the cameras. And everybody relaxed, and we had a great service. <laughs> so, but I'm not recommending that. Thank you very much uh, this evening. Well, you've certainly chosen yourself quite a theme and a half. Uh, sacrifice. When I said yes to the invitation to this, well, thank you, David, for your welcome, by the way. Um, I knew I'd given an address in, uh, with a lot of work on it to my diocese of Chester, to my clergy, and I couldn't find it. <laughs> so I had to go back to the beginning, and really you start uh, thinking about it and working at it, you'll find it is, of course, a huge subject. So I hope you'll bear with me. I'll do my level best to keep you awake. Um, but it's not a light-hearted sort of uh, thing, inevitably, because it's an important subject. Now, one thing we need to get clear is that sacrifice is in almost every religion. It's not something specifically Judaistic or Christian. It is something that people did um, from very early times, even to human sacrifice, although um, not in Christianity. But usually uh, it was to placate the gods or to get the result from the harvest or something like that. Today, um, Buddhism and Hinduism... Uh, continue with enormous numbers of offerings and they're all very detailed. Um, Sheila and I were both at a Hindu wedding um, early uh, uh, during last year and you couldn't believe it after the Christian wedding which had happened the day before which was so clear cut that I was taking it of course so, but I mean there was no paraphernalia the little things, the doing of this, the cracking of that, the putting of the leaf there the, the, all this stuff all had to be done. It's sheer superstition and you think oh god release them from it um, because this isn't, this isn't how you deal with the living God and how he deals with you. There are ten sacrifices, for instance, incense, flower, lamp, necklace, jewel, uh, jewel, parasol, banners, canopies, not canapies, canopies, um, <laughs> clothes, music, and join palms. Hinduism only has five. Food from the meat, a cursory offering to all human beings, a libation of water mixed with sesame offered to the spirits of the deceased and recitation of the Vedas. I'm glad I'm a Christian um, because it's uh, the sort of detail of that sort of thing, the idea that only if you do this will you please God into that sort of detail. It's so far from what Christianity says and the way in which uh, we're to, to take this theme of sacrifice that... Um, it shakes one. Or in the Bible, the earliest sacrifice was what? Cain and Abel. The, the earliest sacrifice in the Bible was Cain and Abel. Um, and uh, really, when you think about it, we'll come back to it later on, that its real purpose was a sort of thanksgiving. Uh, but we'll mention it later on. And the next one was Noah after the flood. And uh, this time, uh, Noah, after the flood, adds uh, a new dimension. He built an altar. He sacrificed clean animals, only clean, he seemed to know that, or was taught that, and clean birds as a burnt offering. But having kept all these animals and birds in the ark for so long, it was quite a sacrifice. Suddenly killed them after you've kept them alive. 
for all that time. So even that was a, a sacrifice in its own right. But this is the first move towards a burnt offering, something that um, was a sort of sweet-smelling savour, which was often a phrase used for such things. So um, later on we'll see how it was a, an element of trying to say thank you to God, but also to please God, this sweet-smelling savour. And there are various uh, sacrifices designated in the Old Testament. Um, there's the unleavened bread. And this was a reminder of the Exodus, as you remember, the unleavened bread, the, the getting ready for the Exodus, uh, that uh, dreadful night, and so on. Um, and there's an interesting statement that moves us, all this prepares you for what we get to eventually. Um, one of the things interesting it says about this is that no one is to appear before me empty-handed. Now, that's a great thing with bread, because you could take the tiniest bit of bread, couldn't you, and still bring it. So even the poorest were able to make an offering to God to, to, to express their thanksgiving for um, the bread and, and for what was being provided in food. And this idea that everybody is involved in it, of course, carries through to the New Testament when we gather together with the communion round the table, as it were. But even then, this idea of participation, um, even at the simplest level, um, and um, uh, you may remember, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 11, that Paul castigates the Corinthians, who needed castigating, um, but uh, he castigates them for not waiting when they had communion. Do you remember the passage in 1 Corinthians 11? The, the people, some people coming late from work, and other people had arrived already, and they weren't going to wait. And Paul said, yeah, what you're doing, you're breaking the communion, basically, by not waiting. This is a communion will. This is where you're sharing together. So even that principle starts um, quite, um, quite early on, really, and uh, is an important one. Um, then there were festivals of harvest, and we're used to that, and of in-gathering. That was when they actually gathered the, the, the crops um, in, into uh, the stores. And um, always, um, therefore, uh, a thanksgiving sacrifice. And one of the principles, again, that we'll pick up later was it needed to be the best, not just anything. It had to have, it, it needed to cost you a bit uh, to, to bring this presentation, this, this sacrifice. But it comes more serious, as you and I, you know your Bibles well enough, when the relationship of God to his people has to be sorted out. And then we move, really, basically, to the Passover meal, the establishment of the Passover meal on that colossal night uh, when they were escaping from Egypt and all that that meant, and um, which it was, of course, the meal into which Christ entered uh, at the Last Supper. So this Passover meal was something that went on right the way through the Old Testament into the New, still going on, even after Jesus had risen from the dead. Of course, it was still going on. And here, you begin to get something much more serious. The Passover meal involved escape from judgment. The idea of judgment comes into the whole sacrifice picture. Here is shed blood. They take the lamb. The lamb is to be killed. And everybody is to partake of it, um, but only as much as they need. If, if the lamb is too big for the family, then they give parts of it away to another family. So you took as much as you, not, not pile it on your plate, uh, but as much as seemed right for you in the sharing. And the idea again, all these ideas start running, which we pick up later. First the lamb, which of course we're used to, that uh, Jesus is the lamb of God. Um, the killing of the lamb, the shedding of the blood, 
And the blood goes, oh, you remember, on the doorpost, um, uh, so that when the Lord comes with a judgment, uh, they, he passes over the home that has the mark of the blood. And we can see that, we can spiritualize that into our own terms as Christians in a way that, that partaking in the sacrifice of Christ uh, upon the cross, uh, our sharing in all of that, um, and the, the acknowledgement of the blood that was shed for us, which we acknowledge in communion, of course, all this um, shows the seriousness of sin, the need to be right with God, and the avoidance of the judgment. So it becomes far more serious as you, as you move on uh, through the Old Testament. There are, in fact, uh, over 300 references to sacrifice in the Bible, so it takes quite a time. I didn't count them all, but I gave up after 300, and I need to look down the concordance. Uh, so there's an awful lot to draw from. Um, but um, the lamb also was to be a male without defect, um, which again becomes something we remember from later on in the Old Testament. And the next time in the Old Testament that, um, in a sense, the most important time after that was the establishing of the covenant after the Ten Commandments are given and the people are gathered with the covenant of God. Are you going to obey God? Yes, we're going to obey God. Do you, do you mean that? Yes, we mean that. Then they take the blood, they have the sacrifice, um, and, and they say, yes, yes, we swear we're not going to let God down. We're going to have this agreement with God. We're going to be his people. God says, you are going to be my people. I seal this, and it's sealed with a sacrifice uh, and, and the shedding of blood as the seriousness of what they're saying um, and the importance of this relationship between us and God. And so this um, the sacrifice now becomes much more uh, an emblem of seriousness that you mean business with God. Uh, whereas uh, many people here would like to think that all, whatever wrong they've done, God will say, well, never mind, it didn't matter very much. But from the word go, God says, this is a serious issue between you and me, and sin separates you from me, and we need to deal with that. And um, this is the chosen way that he does it. Um, so, this just sort of introduces the whole idea. I was once on, on a mission in, um, in Croydon, South Croydon, um, when I was at Theological College, and um, I was out on the street trying to sort of uh, bring people into the mission meetings and so on, and this guy came by. He was um, a teddy boy. Do you remember teddy boys? Or are you too young? <laughs> remember teddy boys were rather garish in the way they dressed, and... Uh, and so, not the sort of person you sort of necessarily pick up in the street to talk Christianity to, but, um, but he was on his own, and I was on my own, and we met. And, um, and he stopped, and we talked. And in the conversation, I said to him, what do you think is the greatest sin? And what do you think he answered? Well, I expected him to say murder or something like that. He paused for some little time, and then he said, I suppose the greatest sin is not believing in God. Not a bad answer for a teddy boy. He got his finger on the point. And that is what the sacrifice is meeting. This breaking down of the relationship has to be restored. And as of course we come later in Christ, we know how that works out. So, um, uh, 
then comes uh, the, in Numbers in particular, the time when there was a sin, sin sacrifice, when you came, as you remember, you, you were to come and put your hand on the head of the animal uh, to identify that this animal was, in a way, in your place or bearing your sin, whichever way you looked at it. But um, this was the seriousness of it, uh, that they had to be killed because of the judgment and all the rest of it. But you identified. And uh, we identify when we take the bread and wine. So we'll come back to that if I ever get to it um, later on in, in, the, in the evening. Somewhere about midnight. Uh, no, don't worry. It's not as bad as that. So then comes uh, one of the, the big things in the Jewish calendar still today is the Day of Atonement. In fact, it's the most important day in the year. I was on, again, another mission when I was at college. We went to an RAF station, which was not too far away, and descended on them. Fifteen theological college students were let loose through their offices and all the poor, poor chaps. They were sitting there, and we all came in on them, you know. Dear me, it's not quite the way to do evangelism, but at least we, that's what we, were, we, we, uh, we did. And, I, and I, one of the chaps I spoke to was a Jew, and I said, um, and what's the most, what, what is it about it? He said, well, it's the Day of Atonement. So I said, uh, do you observe the Day of Atonement? So uh, he said, yes. So I said, uh, why? Well, what's it do for you? Well, I just hope it'll bring me luck for another year. So he didn't quite get the point. Atonement, at one month, the breaking down of the barriers, at one month, the joining across the bridge between God and man. Um, of course, we know that the atonement is the word that we use, as we will see later on, um, of, of our Lord himself. So, that was all fine, in a way, in principle, but again, if you know your autumn, I'm skimming the Old Testament, but I had to go back over everything for you. It did take me three days, this. Um, to try and put it together because um, there's so much in the Bible about it and what I could say and what I couldn't say. But you remember that the trouble was that, okay, they observed these sacrifices um, regularly, but like a lot of people in, in church, not here, of course, but you know, some of these other churches, um, uh, they got very flippant about it. They just went and did what you had to do. You just turned up. Did it make any difference to your life when you went out through the door? No. No. It was just as long as you did the necessary things, and this happens with the other religions, unless you did these things, like in Islam, of course, if you, how many times a day you pray and all the rest of it, unless you did that, you were in jeopardy with God. But that's, as long as you did them, that was all right. Uh, then the prophets come and blow them apart. Um, and... Um, well, it comes from several of them, but one of the most famous statements is, uh, on behalf of God is from Amos. Uh, he said, God says, I hate, I hate, I hate, despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings, I will not accept them. And also your songs, I won't listen. Mind you, neither do I with some of the songs we have today, but... But let, but I, what I want, he says, I want justice to roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-ending stream. What's the use of taking these sacrifices if you're not going to live as I want you to live? It's just 
empty, useless. And so, um, the Bible begins to move towards, as you know, I'm sure a lot of you know all this, tell me afterwards if you did, um, into Jeremiah 32, where God says, right, then let's start again, let's have a new covenant. And um, this new covenant is going to be different, no longer with the nation, but with individuals. And uh, it will be with each person. And I will breathe into your mind the laws and the attitudes of God, which is the Holy Spirit, of course, being forecast. This is going to be a new personal covenant. And this is moving forward to the words we hear at the Last Supper. This is the new covenant in my blood. So this begins in Jeremiah, and alongside it comes Isaiah. um, And Isaiah begins to see that the Messiah, who they long for, is not going to come as a, a warrior judge. And you know as well as I do, you'll hear it endless times, you must do here, Isaiah 53, um, he was transgressed, uh, that he, uh, he uh, was um, pierced for our transgressions. Um, and uh, the amazing statement um, that, um, I'll go back to it, uh, shouldn't walk away from the notes, Michael, you're too old for that. He was pierced for our transgressions, He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And we all like sheep have gone our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the crack statement of what the cross is for us and we'll come to it in a minute. So we know uh, that meant the coming of the Son of God and of his being the eternal Passover lamb. And um, what a sacrifice. What a huge sacrifice. Regardless of the cross, what a huge sacrifice for Jesus to leave heaven. To lay aside his glory. To come as a baby. To live in poverty, really. In a poor part of the world, as it even was then. To grow up as a child, to share our humanity, uh, to know what it was to be human. The, the sacrifice of that, regardless of the cross for the moment, is to my mind, mind-blowing. So, the very coming, the very giving of himself is, is one of the most supreme sacrifices in history. In fact, there can't be a, bi- a, a bigger one. And then, of course, when he comes to the cross, as we come to it later, but again, of course, um, that works out in a, in a very special way. And so, the new covenant moves us forward towards the, the, new, the, the new Testament. And uh, wonder of wonder and wonder that this was what was going to happen, that sacrifice was going to take on a meaning above all other meanings. Now, part two. You all right? You don't want to stand up and turn around and dance or anything? <laughs> okay. Now, can we have the person who's going to read Hebrews 9, 24 to 28? Hebrews 9, 24. Someone's going to read it for me. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us 
in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many and he will appear a second time not to bear sin but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Thank you. Now, this has got it all, really. It's, it's an amazing uh, little passage of scripture, um, but uh, it packs in uh, a lot. Um, I mean, elsewhere, um, yeah, Paul writes about God bringing Jesus as the atonement for our sins and so on. But here in this passage, we have what is very important. The words, once for all, you'll see occur twice. 26 and 28, I think, probably, is the verses if I'm speaking from memory. Once for all. Uh, this is very, uh, quite important for us to get hold of. Uh, as you realise, the, the sacrifices were going on, even in Jesus' time, and uh, the high priests and all the rest of it, because we know, know all that was happening, and uh, all the priestly class were against Jesus and all the rest of it. So this idea of sacrifice, which had run through the Old Testament, still running in Jesus' time, um, but when he comes to offer himself upon the cross, uh, this is the finality. This is what this passage is, is emphasising. This is the end. This is what it's all been coming to. That right the way back there, the Old Testament, all the way through, the idea of sacrifice, it's changing to the new covenant uh, and, and what it's going to mean for individuals. And suddenly it reaches its climax in the cross. And that's it. That's the final one. There is no need for another sacrifice. It is the once and for all sacrifice. It's very important as Anglicans, if I put it, um, that we have this in our mind. And um, it is an important phrase. It's one that was in the prayer book. Um, who remembers the prayer book? <laughs> Gosh. Well, it was lovely stuff in the prayer book. Um, so important was it that Cranmer wrote this. You may remember it from your prayer book days. Heavenly Father who gave your only Son, Jesus Christ, to suffer death upon the cross for our redemption, who made there, by his one oblation of himself, once offered a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. Good old Cramer. He really said it. So when... This is important because within the church over the years have come those who actually don't want to hear that very much. And um, so you'll get a, an attitude that says that what happens up here on the communion table, we come and we remember it. We bring the bread and wine. We come and partake of the bread and wine. We come in our tradition, as the prayer book does, to identify and remember and, and thank God for it. But there are those 
who want to say what happens up here is that I am going to re-offer Christ on the altar. I don't know, you say, where did they get that from? Well, you can, you can manoeuvre into that position. But what they won't have is the word once and for all. Now, when we came to the alternative service book, and I was on General Synod at the time, there was a great force when they had four versions to take out once and for all, so they had one that would suit them. John Selwyn Gummer, bless his cotton socks, was the protagonist, and I was his opponent. And we fought across the synod floor, in a sort of way, as you understand. Um, and we were, I won on that occasion. When I left the synod, they got away with it, with the new common worship. You'll find it's only in two, I think, of the actual prayers of the alternatives instead. But it, it was a vital anchor to the Church of England's belief that we are not doing sacrificial priestly manoeuvres with the bread and wine. We are coming to remember uh, what Christ did once and for all. So this passage is a very important passage. It's not the only passage with once and for all in uh, about the cross, but it is once and for all. I don't have to convince you about that, do I? No, I didn't think I had to. I might have to convince somebody else, but I don't have to. (laughs) So the sacrifice for Christ... Once and for all. Um, And John uh, puts it like this. This is love in 1 John 4. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Um, And then you get people, and I'm afraid I meet them today, contend with one of them actually, and it's quite widespread I'm afraid, it's growing, is the idea that God couldn't condemn anybody. Um, if, if God is love, then everybody's welcome. This is called universalism. And it's very widespread with quite a number of churches around here um, and uh, in, in the diocese here. And so uh, you say to them, well, I don't want to be in heaven with Hitler particularly, but somehow God loves, so he's going to forgive everybody, even whatever they've done. It doesn't make sense to Scripture, but it does if you want to say love. It's all lovey-dovey. And Christianity isn't lovey-dovey in one sense. It's full of love. Full of love. And they say, well, what about the cross? Well, the cross was simply to demonstrate God's love. Oh, no, it wasn't. He could have demonstrated his love for us without going to the cross. With all his wonderful healing and touching and meeting and preaching and teaching. He could have died and we'd still say, he's shown us the love of God. Didn't need to go to all that brutal agony of the cross just to show us love. But he did to deal with sin. This is the Passover lamb. This is the lamb killed for us. And he gives himself as a sacrifice. We know he gives himself, how he found that difficult in the Garden of Eden and so on. He gives himself as that once and for all sacrifice, never to be repeated uh, upon the cross of Calvary for the sins of the world. So that those by faith laying hold of what he's done, can receive forgiveness and entrance into um, uh, relationship with God and eternal life. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it, to be a Christian? I mean, in a way, after communion, we should be dancing down the aisle. Not immediately, because we need to ponder the significance of what we've been doing. But this fantastic, I often sort of 
Every, I don't dance quite so much now. I still do a bit. I did do a Cady dancing the other day uh, for the Burns night. But there, there were times when I have actually leapt down the street. Have you done that? And just said, Lord, how wonderful. Thank you. Thank you that I'm your child. Get up in the morning. I always say that to him. Thank you that I'm your child and I'm your servant. I stand at the tent door ready for your orders today. Hallelujah. And say good morning to, Father, to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I do that every day. Before I get up, before I get out of bed, before I do anything else. Um, because this is uh, the wonder of being his child. Um, I'm getting away from that note, you know. That, these, these, you can't control these, these old speakers. So um, this is uh, this wonderful uh, truth for us, that this is, that the cross is God's supreme love that has set us free from the con- condemnation of sin and the separation from God. Uh, years ago, um, when I was in Chester, some of you may know, in 1988, the, the diocese in this country were encouraged to set up relationships with dioceses in other parts of the world. And we were told, actually, who we were going to have. So we were given New Zealand, which was straightforward enough. I'm in the, the uh, Christchurch, New Zealand, I mean, as a diocese. And also some far bit of Australia. So far, I don't think we'd ever have found it, really. Um, but they turned us down. <laughs> they didn't want us. Um, but in the diocese was a guy who'd been headmaster of the um, very lovely um, secondary school in the Solomon Islands, um, in Honiara, in the Solomon Islands. And uh, he jumped in. Come on, Bishop, he said. Let's go for it. Let's take the Solomon Islands. Let's go, go for um, the diocese of... Uh, 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 this, this diocese of Melanesia, as it's called. And so we did. So we got the Solomon Islands. So in my sabbatical, um, I had a sabbatical for six weeks of it, um, Myrtle and I went out to visit and to establish the link. And going to the Solomon Islands was quite an experience, to put it mildly. Uh, first of all, you rang up the um, travel agent and they said, where is it? <laughs> so I said, well, that's a good start, isn't it? You can't even know where it is. You're not going to get me there very easily. Um, but uh, eventually we got there and uh, ladled ourselves with um, all sorts of uh, prevention from mosquitoes and all the rest of it. Um, and, um, and it was an amazing experience. I mean, they just loved Christ and everything was so simple because you can't have cows there. It's on the equator. Um, so you can't have milk and anything is in cans and all the rest of it. And the parish lunch afterwards was banana leaves and on the banana leaves... Um, uh, there was coconut, broken coconut. And that was it. That's what they lived on. They even built their houses with the coconut. A wonderful thing, coconuts, as long as you're not walking under them and they come down. But, um, but they, they were so happy. They were so happy. They simply loved Jesus. And we had such a lovely time with them. Um, uh, and, uh, but they welcomed us into in the island of Malaita. We went across to the island of Malaita, flew us over there, and it was a little plain. Another story, but uh, as the, and in the later they all turned out. All the all the whole community of this village, or one of the villages, or whatever they're called, townships, whatever it's called, and there were hundreds of, of of the women and the men, and all these young people and all the children. Everybody was there, um, and we were escorted down the path with um, uh, guitar, not guitars, with pipes, playing the pipes um, down the path. And then the, the young men did a war dance for us a Christianized war dance, but it was the same stuff. It was the same, you know, how they dress for it, the paints and 
I don't know, I don't think you call them skirts, but it's the equivalent of, and all the rest of it. They did that all very, very, very quickly. And then an elderly gentleman came up to me, and he said, um, when you go back, he said, to England, um, tell them that we could never, ever thank you enough for bringing us Jesus and setting us free. And if you hadn't done that, we'd have killed you with this. Mind you, it's an imitation, I know, but this is what he actually gave me. This is what he gave me in the Solomon Islands. I could have cried. Isn't the gospel wonderful? The fact that it is once and for all, you don't have to keep re-offering sacrifices. You come back to the one sacrifice and receive the bread and the wine and renew your covenant with God. Wonderful. How are we doing? Are you right? Are you worn out? Do you want to pause? Do you want to pause? You want me to keep going? So, we call this a phrase that some people don't like, substitutionary atonement. He died in my place. He took my sin upon him. And I'm free by faith from that judgment. And the results, as Paul puts it, I'm made right with God, I have peace with God, I have access into this grace, the wonderful knowledge of knowing God. It's so difficult to describe that to people, what it means. I think of all the touches of love this year, the moments when I've cried, that there's no other explanation, but it's the touch of love of God in a, in a circumstance that, that just needed his hand um, of action. And through life, uh, being like that and so many times, it's wonderful to know this. And so a new life begins. And in Holy Communion, I think we need to, we need to come thoughtfully and seriously. I think sometimes we're, we're too quick with it. If you've got a prayer book at home, look up the communion service and see the two great charges, one of them that was to be done the week before. You know, don't come lightly, come reverently, prepare your heart for the communion. And the other, on the day itself, it's a, it's a very, very forceful. And yet often we come and say, no, we've got communion. Oh, yes, oh, boy, you just sit here and just come up and take the wine and but it's one of the most serious things we're doing. We are pledging ourselves into that new covenant. We use the phrase that Jesus used, this is the new covenant in my blood. He doesn't say it of the body, only of the blood. This is the new covenant. And when you take the bread, you're identifying yourself with that broken body once and for all for your sins. And as we take the wine, we are identifying ourselves with that covenant love expressed in the cross, that we're his forever through the cross. It's such a solemn time and I'm not sure how we can improve it in a way except with our own hearts to try and come on the day it is communion more ready for it. Which might mean getting up a quarter of an hour earlier and just being quiet before you come to say, I'm going to take communion today. This is going to be a serious recontract between me and God. Accepting this in his wonderful grace. Now we have the other reading. Hebrews 13, verse 15 to 16. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good 
and to share with others. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Thank you. That sums it up pretty well, doesn't it? I'm going to try, I've obviously got to, to move through, but it, a little bit lighter. Um, give you some sort of headings. I know you're going to do things over the next weeks, including arts and that sort of thing. So, um, um, certainly one of the responses is in sacrifice itself, and we're going to express that in different ways. Um, Romans 12.1 says, I urge you, in view of God's mercy to you, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. That sums it up, doesn't it? Probably don't, in one way, don't do the same thing more. That our response, and this is what we do in the communion service, um, in that prayer after communion, the first of the two prayers, Almighty God, we thank you for feeding us with the body and blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. Through him, we offer you our souls and bodies to be a living sacrifice. We say it. Do we mean it? Because this is the response to the cross. The only response I can have, says Paul at the beginning of Romans 12, it's the only logical way in which I can worship God is responding to him with my life as a living sacrifice, not a dead sacrifice, but a living one. I was once, uh, uh, amongst all my many duties, of course, to speak about six or seven times a week when you're in, in, uh, in the bishop's job. And I could tell you a year ahead where I was going, a year today, um, every day, and so many different things. But So you had to keep adjusting to this lot and that lot and this lot and that lot. And so there was this posh girls' school, uh, the leading girls' school in Chester, and they asked me to go for their speech day or something or other. And so I went to preach in the cathedral for them. And um, I looked at the program, and it gave a history of the school. And do you know what it said? It said, nobody important has ever emerged from this school. <laughs> I thought to myself, what an extraordinary thing to say. I mean, whether it was supposed to stimulate them so there would be somebody to emerge, I don't know. So I began with this. I said, I've done. And I'd also just read the history, the history of the school. And I read of one of your pupils in the First World War, one of your pupils who became a, a sort of Anglican nun, she became, and um, she went to, to serve, and she went out to serve Christ, I, uh, probably in e Egypt, I think, um, and the troop ship she was on was torpedoed. And because she was a woman, lifeboats first, uh, they had them, um, that she refused. She chose, for Christ's sake, to stay on board and minister to those who were going to drown. That sacrifice. And I said to them, nobody important. She's a hero, a heroine. And she gave her life as a sacrifice for others. Um, so there are many, many incidents that I'm sure you can add to them. I love the story of the bishop, the famous bishop who was a bit loudmouthed, um, preaching to the undergraduates years ago in Cambridge, encouraging them to go out to, to Africa. I want you to go out to Africa, live in Africa, and so for, for Christ's sake. And this guy came up afterwards and said, well, I'm, I'm sorry, Bishop, I'm, I don't think I could live in Africa. I didn't tell you to live in Africa, I told you to die in Africa. <laughs> Well, they had pretty sharp ways of looking at things. 
So first the sacrifice of the life, really, which comes in many, many people. Then secondly, in lifestyle, that would be my second one if you're taking notes. Ephesians 4.32 says this, Be kind, compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. Live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. There's that fragrant offering again. In other words, something that uh, is is, uh, a lovely life. Um, How we live in our place of work or road or leisure pursuits, integrity in business, love for people, settling scores, forgiveness, care and sympathy, going the extra mile and so on. Thirdly, it's costly. Um, As you probably know, I've been involved in a lot of building uh, projects. Um, God taught me the taught me in in Manchester in the Coronation Street Parish in Manchester um, to build in the building of a hall. That's when he trained me, really. I I see it like that now. For going to All Souls and doing the rebuilding of All Souls Langham Place in London, which was a somewhat bigger task to put it mildly. But it was exactly the same principles. He he taught me um, uh, the principles of how um, you go about that. So I've been, I get called in all over the place to churches, you know, to come in and beat them up really I think I was sort of encouraged them I should say um, from uh, Scotland down all sorts of churches it's been wonderful really because I can come having done it and having seen the principles work out and each church says well we could never do it and then they do it uh, well not each almost each um, uh, get to that point so I, I was asked to go to a church over in Sussex where they got a building project but they had They'd fallen short by £300,000. I didn't quite know how to raise this, so Charlie Boy gets called in to, to preach for them, and, uh, and they'd record the sermon and play it in the evening as well. And afterwards, I had a letter from uh, somebody um, saying, it was only this morning that I realised that up to now, though I've given generously, it has not cost me. It has not cost me a wealthy person just able to give money. But it hasn't cost me. They raised the 300000 that weekend. The costliness of a sacrifice, if it doesn't cost, is it any valuable to God, as it were, as an expression of your love? Well, it's very useful to the building, I know. But you get the point and the thrust. We're talking about sacrifice. Um, so... There's so many different incidents that are down through my, my experiences in this way. I remember the elderly lady in my two up, two down in, in, uh, in Manchester. She came to see me and she said, my husband and I have always wanted to leave £100 to the church, which to her was a fortune. Um, this simple little house, her husband had died, um, newspaper on the table. She said, I thought, how can I, how can I help with the building project for the hall? Um, and she said, I realised I got this tea set in down, one of those nice decorated, beautiful tea sets, all wrapped up in newspaper that had been there for years and years and years. She said, it's the only valuable thing I have. So I'd been and sold it. And here you are, Rector. She handed me £50 note, £50 in notes. I cried. She cried. Um, then for her birthday, she said, oh, just give me money, darlings, will you? 
She hit the 100. She went beyond the 100. And if that isn't a story, in the same parish, there were a couple who had nothing, really. And the only way they could give, they said, was to give up the Manchester Evening News, which everybody reads in Manchester, every night. And they gave it up, because it's the only way they could find any money to give. Small amount for a newspaper per day. And they gave that as their gift. Now, God honours that sort. That's a sacrifice. And when the paper went up in price, they raised the amount they gave. There's incidents like this that, that really are a joy. I haven't gone over time yet. No, I'm all right. Um, in so many different ways. Um, we, um, when we were rebuilding all souls, we, we came to the point where they weren't, people think they were all wealthy people there. They weren't. They were mostly young people and uh, younger people and students and others and nurses and so on. We resolved that for the 18 months of the building, as, m- as many of us as possible, and it was the majority of the congregation in the end, would live on the minimum for 18 months. We wouldn't buy any more new clothes. Uh, We wouldn't buy anything that we didn't need. We would have the cheapest holidays we could find, try and lend each other if you had a cottage or anything, and give the rest. That's how we raised it. Some nurses, even back then, in 19, what it was, 76, I know gave over £3,000 as a result, which in those days was a lot of money. And that's how God honoured and, and enabled us to give. Because there was sacrifice. And God honoured sacrifice because it's a sacrifice of love. And it, sorry, I could go on a lot about giving, but um, I shouldn't do. Because, but but it, it's just one aspect of sacrifice. Um, or I think when we needed a new chief executive for our, our diocese, because we had ancient colonels and things who were pretty useless before. Um, and the chief executive of Wirral, You've heard of Will recently. And the major job, a fine Christian man, he took the job. He went down two-thirds of his salary. He went down to a third of his salary. For Christ's sake, that's sacrifice. And he was magnificent. Because he did it for Christ, and not for the money or the job. So it's these things that are often uh, wonderful, really. Then the best is another, if you're doing a list, the best Why was Abel's gift accepted and Cain's rejected? Well, I always think, some people tried to say because there was blood in the land, but I think that's pushing it. I don't agree with that. I think it's because if you read it, Cain, it says, brought some of the fruits of the soil. Abel brought the fat portions from some of the firstborn of the flock. That was the difference. This will do, or I want the best. Perhaps you go being invited out to lunch. Do you think, shall I buy that box of chocolates or that one? What can I get away with? And as far as, <laughs> no, I mean, you're not like that, I'm sure. <laughs> Neither am I. But the fact is, he wanted the best for God. And so that's going to come up with you with art and music and practical action and sport and all the rest of it. Then there's thanksgiving and praise. Uh, not earning God's favor, but... Um, Uh, working out uh, this through Jesus, we had read just now, let us continue to offer up to God a sacrifice of praise. Again, from the heart, meaning it. Um, Being a musician, I get very restive about the songs and hymns that we're inflicted with in some churches. I'm sure you're wonderful here, but 
my experiences of quite a number of churches drive me bananas. Um, and I feel sometimes you're standing there, and what on earth does it mean? These hymns and songs ought to be coming from the heart, so we need to know them. They ought to have words that really mean business with God uh, or teach um, and so on. Then pleasing to God is a lovely phrase. The Philippians send uh, supplies to Paul by the hand of Epaphroditus. Paul thanks them with the words, the gifts are a fragrant offering, an acceptable offering, pleasing to God. Though he sees it, they sacrifice these goods. And he sees it as something not just for his own benefit, that's lovely, but God is pleased. It's a lovely action. And don't you feel that very often? You know, I'm sure God would be pleased about this. He is, um, says Paul, really. Do not forget to do good and to share with others, he says, as we read just now. And how far can we respond to the Lord's words in the Sermon on the Mount? If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over the coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Love your enemies. Boom! That's sacrifice. So all our lives, as we come out now, are evolved in responding to the glorious sacrifice of our Saviour that uh, we might be given life forever and not face the judgment. So indeed, back in Romans 12, where it said that offering our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, don't be conformed to the world. We all, all have to be non-conformists. Don't be conformed to the world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. So the sacrificial life is above all wanting to please him, to do his will, to spread his word, to be his servant, uh, to rejoice in the wonder of what he's done for us. Um, And that is the witness that sacrifice should produce in our lives. So may you and I grow in our understanding and adoration of his sacrifice, his supreme sacrifice, once and for all upon the cross. And this Lent, May our lives as a result blossom as sacrificial and pleasing to him. Now all we can sing is when I survey the wondrous cross. <laughs>